today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, Canada's ambassador to China is giving them legal advice on how to avoid extradition of a Huawei CFO to the United States. Whose side is he on? That of communism or democracy? And as a Canadian, I'm sure you love other Canadians. You're a Canadian, I'm a Canadian. But what about province to province? Do those in Ontario like those in Quebec? That's a different story. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Yesterday, the uh, ambassador to China, John McCallum, spoke in regards to the Huawei extradition case. Uh, some are actually calling him to be fired, including the leader of uh, uh, the Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, let's find out exactly what he did say. Uh, basically, uh, giving uh, uh, legal advice on how a extradition could be avoided. And I don't know exactly why. Maybe it is because Huawei is a national flagship company of China. And so it's not just any company, it's a special Chinese company. So maybe that is why he is so angry, or there may be other reasons that I don't know. Uh, He basically uh, gave three different ideas on how the uh, Chinese could approach this and avoid extradition to the United States. Uh, uh, There he was answering a question on why the Chinese is is so upset, which, um, yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, Trudeau has been, uh, I I guess, uh, peppered with questions in regard to uh, uh, bringing uh, John McCallum back home. I guess he heads back uh, to China in the next day or so. Here's what the Prime Minister's response was to that. Our focus remains making sure that the Canadians arbitrarily detained in China uh, are, uh, have their rights respected and indeed that they have an opportunity to, uh, to get home as soon as possible. All right, let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. Gordon, your take on all of this. Uh, it appears that, uh, people are asking which side the ambassador is on. Well, I think we're seeing a very interesting set of developments, and I think it's not it's primary Ambassador McCallum, but it's not just Ambassador McCallum. And I, my guess is that during his time back in in Ottawa, we met clearly met with the Prime Minister, perhaps with the Cabinet, and certainly with the Liberal Caucus to describe the current situation and the crisis really in between Canada and United States. Um, sorry, between Canada and China, uh, that there were some. There's some rethinking going on, because the day before he spoke, Ambassador McNaughton, our ambassador to the United States, made a public comment uh, to the Globe and Mail, and this is not accidental in my view, critical of the United States, critical of President Trump, uh, saying that he's seeking further reassurances that it's not politically based, there's not going to be, Ms. Meng was not going to be a, uh, a bargaining chip in the trade war. And then the next day we have Ambassador McCallum speaking to primarily Chinese language reporters, uh, but not exclusively, um, saying, well, she may have a case. Now, he's at the at the minimum treading on the edges of the doable in terms of a case that is before an extradition court or extradition proceedings. Um, but I don't see all of this as accidental. I see those two steps as uh, the government thrashing about looking for a way out um, and but not yet having determined it. Are they testing the uh, waters of public opinion here? I think they are, and they they may be reading the 
Canadians are divided on this issue as well. There are a large segment, I think probably the majority of the media outlets, um, highly critical of Huawei. Of course, I think almost all Canadians critical of the detention of the two Canadians. But there's a significant body of thinking in the country that um, we were a little bit trapped into this, arresting Ms. Mung on a U.S. extradition, uh, partly related to uh, U.S. trade sanctions, that don't have a Canadian equivalent. It's a little bit like the. That being said, of, that yeah. being said, uh, whose side do you on? That of democracy or di- that of communism? I mean, you know, uh, even though there's lots yeah. of leaders that do not like the president of the day, and we can certainly yeah. understand that discussion. Uh, is that a reason to be playing these games? I, you know, it just seems that you know one of the reasons McCallum gave for uh, uh, the CFO possibly getting off was that Donald Trump has politicized this. Is he? Not not just done the exact same thing? Well, there's the danger, and the Chinese have been quick to pick this up, the Chinese media. I mean, immediately, the same day. He's done the uh, same thing. He's done exactly what he's accused Trump of. And, and they are saying today, the press spokesman for the foreign, Chinese foreign ministry said, Ambassador McCallum, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, has basically said what we have all been thinking, that this is a political business. So, the, I think it has entrenched the Chinese views that they're, they're trapped in a political thing that's got nothing to do with breaking U.S. laws. There is the danger of that, absolutely. Will this influence the, the judicial process here? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you respond to this as a country? Well, it's, it's going to be a complex hearing because certainly Huawei can afford to have the best Canadian lawyers represent her side. And there's not now just President Trump's comments, there's Ambassador McCallum's comments, Ambassador McNaughton's comments. Uh, there's some ammunition that they can use to try and prove the point that this is a political thing. And, and the extradition treaty has a carve-out for political, uh, politically generated extradition requests. There is the danger. In fact, even if the judge says there's enough evidence to warrant a trial in the U.S., proceed to extradition, there's a final check off with the Minister of Justice, and that new Minister of Justice can say it is a political action. So there's, uh, we're, we're, that ha- will only happen, though, after a decision of the court. Well, if the decision is to release her, uh, then it's over. Uh, if the decision is to extradite her, then you're into an appeal process. But months down the road, there is still a federal minister, the Minister of Justice, who can say, no, it's political, let her go. I'm not saying he would say that, and Americans would be furious with us. And is McCallum not contributing to that? Absolutely, because he's giving... Well, then let me ask you this. Is he giving the government an out here by fanning fanning those flames? That's why I don't think it's entirely a misstep. Mm. I see McNaughton with a half-step, and then McCallum going much further. The two of them, um, in effect questioning the process in which we're involved. So I think absolutely they may be, they may be laying the groundwork for, for further advance in this issue. So whose side is Canada on? Uh, again, not happy we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, but which way are you going to go? Can you sit on the fence on this and not be damaged? I, I think it's, we're, we're stuck. I mean, we're, there's no way we can be neutral or uninvolved here because we... So we, whose side are we on then? Well, I, I guess ultimately I suppose we want to be on Canada's side. Um, but this won't be the first time that we're going to be stuck in a tug-of-war between the United States and China. At the end of the day, U.S. is our 
key market. There are security guarantors, historical ties, close neighbors, somewhat similar political system, although they're very different. At the end of the day, when push comes to shove, we're always going to have to be with our American cousins. That having been said, there is a danger that uh, the U.S. could fight China to the last Canadian. And that's the, in other words, if we, I, what I really don't want to see is a situation where President Trump does give away Ms. Meng as a chip and says, okay, maybe she goes to trial in the States, maybe she doesn't, but the Americans will give her over um, for their own domestic reasons. If they're going to play it by the book, by the rule of law, um, that's one thing. And that's why I think some of that nervousness maybe have some rationale. What about calls for uh, the Prime Minister to remove McCallum? Your thoughts on that? Well, I'll betray a bias here because I'm a former Foreign Service officer. Um, I've never been dead keen on political appointees. Um, you could say that's sort of almost like a solidarity with like a union sense. Perhaps it is. Um, I, I just have a sense sometimes that it, it adds uh, one big advantage, trying to be fair. McCallum, uh, unlike almost any other ambassador, can pick up the phone and the prime minister will answer it. And the Chinese know that. And so that gives him more clout in Beijing, to be sure. Uh, but um, I, without getting into McCallum personally, uh, I think there there can be a downside. And I think the opposition, the uh, Mr. Scheer, feels much more comfortable, attack, comfortable attacking um, Ambassador McCallum because they know he's a former Liberal cabinet minister. He's got political past that goes back decades, and that uh, they gave McNaughton a pass. Um, uh, but uh, I think that's one of the downsides of. Of, of political parties. I think he's on the very edges, and now with his statements, he's into the political process to some extent again in domestic sense. So it may be fair game. I don't. Firing, firing ambassadors has its downsides, though. It takes a while to find a replacement. In the meantime, we've got the teen Canadians. Um, you don't want the ship to be without a captain. Uh, so I think firing him precipitously would not be a good thing. I understand why Mr. Scheer might say that, but I don't think it's a uh, it's, it's a, a really tough precedent. Uh, I had no doubt about it. If the, Mr. Scheer were to come to power, Mr. McCallum would would not last a month, uh, would not last a week perhaps. But um, I guess at this point in time, when we've got those Canadians detained, uh, we need an ambassador as head of mission. You know, we need him back in Beijing, I'd argue, more than we need him in Markham. Hmm, good point. Um, in your opinion, will the CFO uh, be extradited of Huawei? Oh, my goodness. What a tough Because question. at one time, that wasn't such yep. a tough question. Now it appears no. it is. Now it is. Well, one puzzling thing to me uh, is, why have the Americans taken forever to present the extradition request? Uh, they had from December 1st until... January 30th, and they now say they're going to proceed. They've left at the absolute minute. Now, that telegraphs to me that there's been really serious debate uh, within the Trump administration as to how to proceed, and I bet the Chinese are behind the scenes um, really emphasizing to the Americans, don't do this, don't do this. They're going to proceed. Uh, I have a feeling at the end of the day, hmm, you're making me jump. And my track record for predicting the future is very mixed. I'll say yes, you will be extradited. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't give the degree of confidence of that that I might have had a couple of weeks ago uh, because of this um, softening of the Canadian position, comments by two ambassadors um, uh, unhappy with the U.S. Uh, actions. I want to see that extradition 
request deposited, of course. Uh, they say they'll do so. I'm sure they will. There'll be another uh, burst out of out of Beijing at that. But right so so far, the Americans have, the Chinese rather, have been very easy on the Americans. Uh, Meng's father, the, the CEO of Huawei, has even praised President Trump. Yeah. And I think that's sort of been designed to try and get the Americans to play ball and let her go. It's a, it's a very complicated situation. Gordon Holden is with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, and changing all the time. Thank you, Gordon, for the time so much. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure, Scott. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, John McCallum, ambassador to China, spoke out uh, basically giving uh, about three reasons uh, how or ways in which uh, the Chinese could avoid uh, this uh, extradition to the United States. Let's bring in Jacob Covalio, professor, Japanese-Chinese-Asian Affairs, Carleton University, and on the line now. Jacob, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, yes. Your take on uh, what has happened over the last 24, 48 hours in regard to the ambassador to China. Right. So I'm a little bit, at least, disappointed with Mr. McCallum's, uh, uh, well, appearance as well as, well, on both the form and uh, substantive, you know, reasons. In terms of form, meaning appearance, for goodness sakes, our ambassador appeared, you know, shabby, almost unkempt. And that is something that is extremely important in international relations, particularly when you're dealing with an element uh, like like China, where decorum and appearances, and in general, are important in the case of China even more so. But of course, it's the issue of substance that's much more significant here. Uh, the fact that beginning with the environment in which the statements were made, in other words, only Beijing and pro-Beijing Canadian Chinese media being invited, that is a very unfortunate faux pas, if you ask me. And in my view, at least, this amounts publicly as to uh, what I would refer to as publicly, you know, kowtowing to Beijing. And that is very, very unfortunate, something that could very easily have been avoided, for example, by making the three points that you were mentioning in your intro a minute ago uh, known to Beijing, if Beijing had not been aware of those uh, before, through regular diplomatic or political channels, instead of in a rather undignified, from our standpoint, uh, impromptu uh, press conference that, again, has left some people, beginning with myself, with not a very, you know, nice taste in our political mouths. Now, consider the way in which Beijing has dealt with this issue from the very beginning. It is threatening, supremacist, or even racist tones and expressions that they have, that they have uh, used, totally unnecessarily, by the way. Beginning with uh, the guy named Lu Shaiye, who is the Beijing representative uh, to Canada, and was accusing us of following or engaged in Western racism, which is beyond the pale. And he should have been, you know, showed the door uh, not very long afterwards, as the case should have been with Lu Xumin, 
who was his predecessor, who was equally disrespectful and completely unnecessarily aggressive in the manner and the, the words that he used in order to characterize our government. I'm talking about the previous government right. uh, to, uh, to the incumbent government. Now, in the Chinese media, and of course there's plenty of material available to those of us who, you know, do not uh, speak Chinese, read Chinese. Expressions like Canada as a U.S. puppet. Um, uh, Canada is a henchman for the United States. Something like any countries and forces that persecute Chinese citizens and business people will pay a heavy price. And perhaps most important of them all, if you ask me, among the many Chinese uh, Beijing organs of propaganda abroad, is the English language Global Times. And there's a video um, link there, which every day or every other day has comments that, of course, represent Beijing policy. Unlike ourselves in Canada, in uh, China, you only put out for international you know, knowledge things that are directly facilitated or uh, that the Beijing uh, regime itself is interested in. The commentator's name is Hu Xijin, and again, his uh, videos, always a minute and a half in length, are available on the video link on Global Times. And on the 12th of December, 2018, there is a video, that, the title of which is Canada Will Feel China's Revenge. Revenge is the, the term that he's using, and again, it's a minute and a half in length, no problem to listen to it and understand what's going on. In other words, from the very beginning, Beijing's attitude, Beijing's way of dealing with this is in a manner that is completely unacceptable simply because, unlike ourselves, in China there is no such, this China in particular since December 2012 when Xi Jinping came to power, is the kind of regime where there is no separation whatsoever between politics which sets the tones and completely dominates everything in the law. And there is another comment by the same Hu Xijin that refers to Chinese um, law, Chinese legal practice, as a tiger with very sharp teeth. One of the reasons the, that uh, John McCallum gave for uh, uh, this extradition to be avoided was the fact that Donald Trump had politicized the event. Did John McCallum just not do the exact same thing? Well, of course, that's, see, the entire point is, my point anyway, is the way in which this was done. And that, of course, includes our ambassador, Mr. McNaughton, in, in, in Washington, who also referred to the, um, to the statement by the, uh, the American president. Again, to me, what Mr. McCallum tried to do yesterday was more to serve, actually, China's interests than ours, just because of the environment as well as the manner in which he announced the existence of these points which are legal you know fine points which are fine in and of themselves but should not have been done in the manner in which he did that is just uh, uh, one of many examples at least in my view where we are not displaying self-respect in the right manner in which we are conducting our relationship with China so that in order to attract China's respect for us. Regimes like the one that has existed in China for, well, since 1949, respect others only if those others respect themselves. 
everything is a zero-sum game politically for those regimes because in a democracy you are in power today and four years or three years or five years from now you're not. In a regime like that, you must be in power forever as a result of which a fake but still an important image that you have to display to the outside world as well as, of course, with your own people who never have a chance to elect you or, or dump you at election time is an image of perfection of being very successful, of being not only respected, but even kowtowed to in the Chinese-specific context. And it, it's based on those points that I'm expressing, you know, disappointment about the way in which Ambassador McCallum first, of course, uh, presented those points, as well as, again, in the physical context or the, the form, the appearance, his own personal appearance. Again, we were talking about our top man in China, for goodness sakes. And therefore, his appearance, A, physically should have been different. And then the channel, which is, of course, much more crucial. The channel through which these points should have been transmitted to Beijing should have been completely different. Because otherwise, if I, if I read, if you will, correctly Beijing's attitude in international relations, this will be interpreted as a form of kowtowing. And therefore, not only a change for the positive, if you will, in the way in which they deal with, with us or with our government, to be more specific, but something that should give them an opening to apply additional pressure, you know, to squeeze whatever it is that in terms of political advantage they may want to, uh, to, to gain from this, from this incident. And again, if you look at the manner in which this was publicized to the outside, the outside world through Global Times on December the 12th in that comment, uh, commentary that I mentioned earlier, you'll see immediately how things are being done and the manner in which they are being uh, circulated, if you will, to the international community, first of all, first of, all of course, to ourselves. And one, one more point, very brief one, if I may, regarding Huawei. We haven't decided yet if at the government level or in the government context we're going to be using Huawei technology was announced that today they, they've just uh, uh, been successful in making, uh, manufacturing those chips for 5G. That is fine, good for them. But insofar as governmental use or introduction of Huawei equipment, it's not only us who are still considering it, and whatever decision the government makes, I hope will take into account really our national and security interests. But as we speak, not only the five eyes, but also um, France, as well as Germany, as well as Israel, as well as Finland, have announced that they are not going to be employing or using uh, Huawei equipment in their governmental you know, context. And that is something that gives us a clearer picture as to, what's, as to what is going on here. Again, we are dragging our feet. Again, I may not be privy. Of course, I'm not privy to information that the government has. I hope uh, and Mr. Goodale has, has, has stated three days ago that our national interest, national strategic and security interests, will be the fundamental, the, the cornerstone of our decision going forward regarding the introduction of Huawei uh, communications equipment in our government circles. Um, you talked earlier, we mentioned uh, lots are, are, are looking at this as a gaffe. Now, perhaps not so much could have been just strategically placed. Why that approach from this government? Can you play both sides of the fence and, and come out of this scot-free? I, well, I don't think so in the longer run. In the longer run, in the sense that a decision will have to be made yes or no 
to introduce Huawei um, equipment. But we have to remember that the prime minister has been, for years, even before becoming prime minister, uh, known for his very strong um, affinity to Chinese political culture, even that political culture since 1949, which is something for any democratic entity that should be considered just unconscionable, at, at least. And that, of course, was expressed in the way in which our prime minister has been um, has expressed um, uh, his views regarding Fidel Castro, including the, the incident that never um, actually panned out, luckily, after um, uh, Fidel Castro's death. This is the kind of, uh, of approach that is not only unbecoming, but I don't think it is in the best national interest of ourselves as a full-fledged, fundamentally democratic, open, non-racist, wonderful societies, society vis-a-vis the regime in Beijing, which of course can make decisions very quickly. But beyond that or under that, there is an environment or a foundation which is unconscionable the moment you get into the details of what is facilitating a regime in 2019 to act the way it does. Something that in our you know, context would be not only impossible to establish, but even impossible to think about. The trouble that we have, in my view at least, is that we are not well informed. And I'm, not, I'm talking about Canada at large, if you will. We're not well informed as to the real nature of this regime on its own turf when it comes to dealing with minorities, when it comes to dealing with with, um, neighbors. In other words, Beijing, as we speak, for the past, particularly for the past uh, seven years or six and a half years since the ascendance to power of Xi Jinping, has been applying pressure in a variety of ways, military, political, trade, on the Republic of Korea, on Japan, of course on Taiwan, on India, on Vietnam, on Malaysia, on Indonesia, on Thailand. This is something that once you understand the magnitude of, you realize how part and parcel of that overall policy of domination, hegemony, even imperialism, I would dare referring to it as, and therefore understand our position much better, and hopefully in time, hopefully earlier rather than later, bring about a situation where, based on what we know about that regime to be about, we know how to deal with it in peaceful, but also, well, as strong and self-confident as well as self-respecting means as possible. That's something that's absolutely vital. If you only focus on um, economic or trade issues, at the elimination or total absence to reference to the politics of that regime, that is something that, not in the long run, but even in the interim run, and even in the short run, is going to be self-defeating. In other words, the slogan of the regime in Beijing, since Mao, but especially since the, the adoption of capitalism under the very sophisticated, you know, hoax or fake name of socialism or socialist market economy, which is the most in, unbelievable oxymoron in, in, in history, is politics in command. In other words... Everything serves the one paramount cause, and that is the politics of the government. The incumbent government has to stay in power forever. In other words, one party, no elections, and bullying whoever allows themselves to be bullied. 
in our case, of course, politics is important. But again, you are here for four years. I'm talking about you know parties in, in, in government. And then if you don't get the acquiescence of your masters, meaning, meaning the Canadian electorate, you're out of power. And then try to convince again that you serve the people. In a regime like that, the people always serve the government. The, not the government, the regime. The regime is the term that we have to keep using in order to understand how that kind of a, of a, a political structure works. So politics in command is their slogan. Our slogan is people in command. Through what? The ballot box. Uh, in North America lately, it seems to be fashionable. We always talk about the extreme right, the all right, how dangerous this is. Is this giving, bringing attention to the extreme left? Well, the extreme left has been very successful, if you ask me, and I'm in a university, practically as I'm speaking with you right now. So the extreme left has gradually become very influential, and in the university context, including, by the way, the intellectual realm, if you will, dominant since 1968, barely, what, 50 years ago last year. Now, when it comes to the alt-right, alt-right, of course, insofar as straightforward racist fascism is unacceptable and it has to be dealt with in ways that are amenable with our democratic uh, democratic system in the sense of what doing research arguing over this criticizing the alt-right which in principle is unacceptable the point is that the alt-left which of course also exists of course exists i've even coined a term in our language based on the latin word for left which is of course um um, um, the term sinister, sinisterosis, that is leftism, is something that has come to affect many a university and even some media outlets. But again, to be more clear here, we have to engage the alt-right in debates. We'll have equally to engage the alt-left in debate as well and to make sure that freedom of expression and freedom of publicity and publication are the means through which this kind of debate is being held. In the case of, uh, of the so-called people, so-called Republic of China, that is absolutely um, unacceptable. So again, in our neck of the woods, as it were, we have to allow all points of view to be expressed and then, of course, engage in criticism constructive to the extent possible, but as clear, straightforward, and unequivocal in order to make sure that the average Canadian, beginning with the younger generation, are aware of what is available, but on the, at the same time, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And by the way, the alt-left that I've been referring to, since the 1960s, at the height of the so-called Cultural Revolution, in, in China of Mao Zedong, had been supportive of that regime, and they do that to this very day even, which is, of course, very, very strange, but it's understandable in the way in which the alt-left has been fundamentally opposed to democracy and using democracy only to eventually try and overthrow it, if at all possible, which I, for one, hope will never happen. Fascinating discussion. Uh, Jacob Covalio has been with us, Professor, Japanese-Chinese Asian Affairs at Carleton University. Jacob, we'll talk again. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Give yourself a great day, and thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
you don't want to take it into the weekend and, and you know, uh, be cranky and upset and all that sort of stuff. A fascinating uh, study today done by uh, Angus Reid we're learning of, and uh, it talks about the Federation of Canada and uh, how each of us in each province look at the other. As Canadians, we all love Canadians. You're a Canadian, I'm a Canadian, everybody's a Canadian. Ooh, we're great. But when you break it down to provinces, I'm from Ontario, you're from Quebec. Oh, really? That's nice. All right, at least you're Canadian. Uh, it's interesting in some of the fallout and, and how these results have uh, come forward. Let's bring in Dave Korzynski, Research Associate, Angus Reid Institute, and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Glad to be on with you. So tell us about the poll. Uh, what was your objective here? What were you trying to do? So we've got this project that we're doing over the course of the month here. We, we are trying to identify... Um, what we're calling the New West in Canada. So it is really focused on the kind of the West-East divide and how that is manifesting itself in 2018-19, I guess now, um, versus previous generations. And for this particular poll, this is part two, we wanted to just look at the lay of the land and see, you know, it, it's, it's 2019, a lot has changed in recent years with, you know, the, a, quite a contentious federal government in some parts of the of the country and these these tensions around resource issues and just find out you know who views uh each province as friendly or perhaps unfriendly um from the perspective of their own province and oh. what you find um we could start with ontario quickly mm-hmm. because yep go for the, it the story the story is interesting in ontario insofar as you know, we, we often find this, but Ontario is kind of its own universe. There isn't really a sentiment for for any of its neighbors. Um, <laughs> like, Being in it, Ontario, it, none of this surprises me, Dave. It's funny because, you know, uh, you've got um, 44% of uh, Ontario residents um, saying that, you know, sorry, 44% of Quebec residents saying that Ontario is, is a close friend, and you've got 42% of New Brunswick residents. So the surrounding regions are saying, you know, Ontario is a, is a friend, and, you know, they, they view that province positively. But then for Ontario looking outward, it's only about 12% and 7%. So you've got Ontario residents who are saying, you know, no, we're, we're kind of doing our own thing, and 41% actually say that they don't think that any of the provinces are particularly close with their own. So I guess, you know, there's, there's enough people in Ontario that you, you're kind of doing your own thing, and uh, everyone else has some more defining relationships, I would say. Uh, you were talking about this being a West, started as a Western uh, assignment, so to speak, comparing East to West. I remember living in uh, Calgary in the 80s, and, and back then, you know, Ralph Klein was, uh, who was the mayor at the time, uh, Eastern scums and pigs. It was, it was like a huge rivalry. Has anything changed? Is there still that deep-seated rivalry for some reason between the East and the West? Uh, there, there really is. There's, um, there's quite a bond you find when you ask the, the positive version of this question. You see that Alberta and Saskatchewan are very close with each other. Um, about seven in ten residents in each say that that those provinces are close, and that that drops substantially for BC, which is really one of the trends over the course of generations. Is that BC used to be a part of this Western Bloc and is now kind of off on its own. Um, but then when you look uh, east you see 
Alberta residents, really about four in 10 of them saying that they view Ontario as kind of hostile or unfriendly toward their province. And a lot of that really centers around Ottawa um, and and just how they perceive the federal government as not uh, getting these natural resource projects going and, and kind of getting bogged down. And they, they really do blame Ottawa for a lot of that. But uh, eight and ten actually say that, that Quebec is, is hostile or unfriendly toward their province. And that's the same number in Saskatchewan. So Quebec is really um, seen as, you know, an isolated uh, region here. In Ontario, 6 and 10 say that Quebec is unfriendly, and they, they really don't have a, a ton of uh, provincial buddies to kind of uh, hook onto on, on particular issues. They're really isolated. And for Alberta and Saskatchewan, they look at both of those provinces and say, you know, we, we haven't been treated fairly and you don't really understand the values and the needs of, of the prairies. So that's that's really an issue, particularly, you know, going into a federal election and seeing how these um, these opinions really manifest themselves in terms of which parties can, can get support from those regions. So it's an interesting year to be doing this study and seeing some of these, these fractures. Uh, are we learning anything from this stuff? Like, is, we seem to be as fractured, uh, you know, now as we were way back when. Like I said, I remember when I was living out west and joking with friends who were from both east and west, and then they always oh, hate the east. It's like, why do you hate us? We don't hate you. Matter of fact, we don't even know you exist, which, of course, is being reflected in your poll here. Um, has there been any times when... Uh, we were closer than what we are, or, or is, is this is this the status quo? You know, the, we were slightly closer back. You know, we have we have some 1991 data that shows that things were a little bit more uh, comfortable and friendly, and it's really it really is deteriorating. And it when you look at a lot of these issues in polling um, over the last couple of years, the, the polarization is just really getting quite overwhelming. Uh, and and I think, as I mentioned, BC is is the really interesting part. There is that, you know, BC can't even get on the same page as Alberta and Saskatchewan now because the politics are so different between those regions. So, it's it's a difficult problem to to solve. I mean, you saw the Liberal government this past year seeing that uh, you know the Trans Mountain Pipeline wasn't going to to be completed and actually purchased it and is now putting it through that uh, the review process, but. Uh, Albertans don't don't see that as enough. I, I think I, I'm not sure what exactly they expect uh, from the government, but that that kind of uh, signal from the government that said, you know, we're going to get this project through uh, despite the opposition in BC doesn't really seem to have turned anybody. And you've seen um, Rachel Notley really turn against the federal government in this election year, and I think that's just kind of creating it's these divisions are just becoming more manifest and it's really hard to see a situation where we all do come together that isn't around, you know, Olympic hockey or <laughs> some sort of sporting event. Like these are the, there's only a few things that really do unify us and, and the West really feels like they're on a, a different planet and they're not being catered to. Um, I mean, maybe one of the issues that they could make some headway on is this, this whole conversation about equalization and, and uh, if if the government does decide that they're going to pull some of that equalization money from Quebec, you could see that number drop a little bit. But it's hard to see um, a lot of this improving over the next couple of years. Um, just you know, as as you've probably seen in the political discourse that you're observing, it's it's a difficult time, and we're kind of moving in the wrong direction. It looks like. 
Uh, as you mentioned, it always seems to be the East against the West, but now the West, as you mentioned, is very fragmented. How do you, uh, well, we know why uh, BC and Alberta aren't getting along. It has to do with a pipeline. Um, but man, it's only a mountain range that separates these two. Are you surprised at, at the animosity between each? Yeah, and, and there's one really interesting data point that's actually not in this release, which is coming next week, which I can kind of give a little bit of a preview for. The, the data won't be available for anybody who wants to look it up, but we asked about the, the values that, that Canadians align with, and for each of the provinces, we gave them regions that are close by, whether neighbours or uh, the states to the south, and you see you know, a handful of residents in, in Manitoba choosing North Dakota and and uh, in Saskatchewan going south. and But in B.C., you see 50, I believe it's 54% of B.C. residents who say that they align more closely with Washington than anybody else in Canada. And California is actually second on that list, and Alberta comes in third. So the the ideological divide is really something that I think, I mean, maybe the provincial leaders can make some headway there and Maybe there's some sort of cooperation if if the pipeline expansion does go through. Maybe tensions will come down a little bit. But it really is surprising to see um, that, you know, 30 years ago, B.C. residents really, they saw Alberta as as a friend and and a partner in this, you know, the angst against the East. And and now they're just, you know, they're between Alberta and an ocean, and B.C. residents don't really have anyone. And Alberta and Saskatchewan have really aligned on a lot of these issues. And that's kind of the, the... cabal now that that they're really trying to get their issues addressed and not really working with BC anymore because of the opposition on energy issues. It, it essentially comes down to that. So uh, it'll take a lot of work, I think, for provincial leaders to get some of these collaborative projects going and, and try to show uh, residents that, you know, BC and Alberta are still we're in the same country and, mm. you know, we share a border and everybody's traveling back and forth. And, you know, the, when it comes down to it, you put politics aside, I think, the residents are still close, but it's just such a politically divided uh, time right now. Uh, I know this is a you know this is based on on Canadian data, but it it doesn't seem the U.S. has this problem. They've got the same amount of land as we do, except crammed with ten times more people. Um, why do there not seem to be the regional divides in that country that there seem to be here? I think you would. I think you would find some um, if you were to look in, in you know the large urban coastal cities and then sure. move inward. And I think that's a little bit more of what you're seeing here. Is it's the it's really the economic interests that that define this, and those play out at the political level in the way that the politics is working right now. You see these these issues hammered home over and over again. Um, the one example of this is the part one of the study was looking at resource and pipeline issues and. The pipeline um, crisis, if you will call it that, that's what a lot of people, 6 and 10, saw it as a crisis, is something that, you know, the report came out that the Alberta government has spent, I think it was $23.8 million on ad campaigns to kind of uh, foment the the feeling that this is a crisis and this is something that, that Canada absolutely needs. And you see these issues just kind of exacerbating what might be uh, more marginal tensions and, and really kind of creating a, an us-versus-them type of divide, I think that you would see that in, in various areas um, in the United States. But if you ask somebody you know, from Alabama what they think of New Yorkers, you're probably going right. to get a yeah. similarly uh, divisive response. Um, but I think right now uh, in the, the political climate, there's a benefit to 
the parties to try to create these divides and try to shore up uh, what what base support they can get heading into elections. And I think that because there's a federal election coming up and because there's an election in Alberta, this is uh, a particularly uh, you know high temperature time to be doing this type of study. And if you did this, you know, two years into each of those terms, and with a pipeline that was approved, perhaps there's there's not as much of a divide, but uh, in the in the particular climate right now, it's just something where I think that nobody's really trying to to quell the tensions. Everybody's trying to to benefit from them in the discourse right now, rather than to try and shut them down. Will this be surprising for any who's interested in this data? Do you think? Um, I think uh, the one the one note that was particularly surprising was um, we asked this question of you know who who gives more than they get and who gets more than they give as a part of the federation and. Hmm. You know, a lot of this <laughs> comes down to the, the economic value that, that uh, the provinces perceive. And I thought it was particularly surprising that, you know, we, we all kind of assumed that Alberta would be at the top of that list, but they are really quite a bit above everybody else in the country in terms of uh, Canadians recognizing the value that that, that province gives to, to the rest of the country in terms of job growth and uh, resource uh, revenue. You've got three in ten overall saying that Alberta does more for Canada than Canada does for it, and that really holds uh, across the country. So I thought that that was a little bit surprising. And the other one is that... Well, perhaps the PR is uh, working then. It, it may be, yeah. And the, the other one that's interesting is that Quebec is really chosen as the province that takes more than it than it gives, um, and that's by you know more than a two to one margin over Ontario. So people really look at Quebec and they're thinking, you know, it's this isolated area that doesn't seem to have a ton of affection for anybody else, and uh, they look at it as kind of an outlier in Confederation. And the interesting thing there is that even one in five Quebec residents say that Quebec takes more than it gives. I, I really <laughs> wow. enjoyed that data point. That was wow. the one where I was like, I have well, to write about this. And we this all know great. this. We all know the story here, and I'll say it. You know, Quebec wants something. They whine for stuff. If they don't get it, they threaten to separate. And that's what is probably on the minds of most Canadians. Is that? Is, am I being uh, too forthright with that? I, I think you're probably hitting a, a mark there, and I think that is also something that um, is really starting to kind of bubble up in Alberta, this whole this idea of um, maybe not separation, but kind of creating a situation where they can they want to try and and get leverage over the the kind of power that they have. And you know, when you look at the way that Canada perceives them, Canadians really do say, you know, Alberta is doing a lot. So um, you've heard uh, Jason Kenney saying that he was going to hold a a referendum. I don't believe it would be binding on anything, but he wanted to pull natural resource revenue from the equalization formula. And if there's any um, sort of uh, traction on that issue, that might help Alberta. Um, but I, I'm not sure how effective a separation would be for Alberta being, you know, stuck out here in the West. But that is the lever that Quebec uh, does tend to pull from time to time. If the country has a tendency to feel sorry for Alberta, where does that leave the battle between BC and Alberta? Uh, you know, it, it leaves BC a little bit isolated in terms of. Uh, nobody really um, has a ton of. They're uh, becoming Ontario. <laughs> is exactly, B- you know, BC <laughs> BC is actually slightly higher than Ontario in terms of 
that when you ask them if there's anybody who they consider a close friend, you've got 43% of BC residents saying nobody, which is, uh, along with Ontario at 41, is, is, you know, two or three times the amount that say that in most other areas. So BC is really kind of joining Ontario in being the, you know, that, that urban kind of people view them in the middle of the country as the, you know, the, the ivory tower elites out mm-hmm. in Ontario. I think BC is getting a little bit of that. Um, and now it's stealing a bit of Ontario's thunder in terms of isolation. BC is um, just so, too beautiful for its own good. That's the problem here, Dave. That's what it is. Yeah, we can't help it. <laughs> uh, what about the Maritimes? It seems everyone loves them, though. Yeah, the Maritimes um, are are either loved or ignored. I mean, nobody has any sort of animosity towards New Brunswick, uh, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. Um, we actually have some data for PEI, but they're so small that... Um, you have difficulty publishing that because of the sample sizes, but the same thing did hold there. Um, and what's interesting about Atlantic Canada is there's very close relationships between all of those provinces and, and you know, themselves. And then it's quite a, a quiet kind of uh, response rate when you look at Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and B.C. But in Alberta, you've got, you know, three in ten residents in each of those areas saying that they view Alberta as a friend and, uh, and an ally. And a lot of that, again, is because of the migration um, of some Atlantic Canadian uh, workers who've gone out to the oil patch and really have benefited and been right. able to you know, sustain their families based on the, the, the growth in Alberta and the, hmm. the resource wealth. So Alberta really does have uh, a good pocket of, of friends all across the country, and that does extend out to the East Coast. So that's another uh, interesting element of this. All right. If uh, a listener wants to find out more about this information, where can we go, Dave? Um, it's right on angusread.org. We've got a big uh, feature image that says the New West, and part one and two are up there, and then we're rolling out three and four over the next couple of weeks. So we, we might chat again next week. All right. Dave Korsinski has been with us, research associate with Angus Reed Institute, speaking to us from beautiful British Columbia, and uh, a, a breakdown, a profile of how each of us think of each other. Dave, thanks for the time. Interesting stuff. Thanks, Scott. Have a good afternoon. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.